Thank you so much. You may be seated. Thank you. Praise God. Worthy is the Lamb. Amen. Wonderful to see you this morning. Welcome. And uh, so glad to welcome people joining us online. And thank you for you who knew for prayers for uh, me. My voice was out last week uh, uh, suffering from what I've come to know, having grandchildren in PDO, I call it the PDO plague, okay? Parents stay out plague. It's a wonderful ministry, but I'll tell you, it is a Petri dish of various things. And you take those little ones in your arms and you love them, but uh, there's some stuff going around. So, so thanks for your prayers. Great to be with you this morning. And sing the hymn of heaven, right? And have rehearsal for the main event that may not be far away. Let's read a little bit about that this morning in the book of Romans chapter 11. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 11, the passage that Terry read for us. If you are a guest this morning, we are on a journey through this incredible letter written by the Apostle Paul that highlights the amazing grace of God, a grace that is completely of him, not of ourselves, and it is a grace that saves everlastingly through Jesus Christ. Amen. Just four weeks ago, in Israel, there was a proposed law that made it through the first reading, the vote of approval, actually passed in their parliamentary procedure, the first reading. And this alarmed Prime Minister Netanyahu and as the leader of his party, which is a coalition party, he was finally able to see that this proposed law, which had received a lot of support in the Knesset, did not come forward for a full vote. Now here is what the proposal of the law was. This is just four weeks ago. The law would have made it a criminal offense in Israel to attempt to convert someone to another religion. Now, maybe you don't know, it is already illegal in Israel to encourage a person under the age of 18 to convert from their religion unless you have the written approval of both parents. That's already in force. And so this was a proposed law to make it a criminal offense in the nation of Israel to attempt to convert someone to another religion. Now, my question is, why? Why did that type of proposed legislation even make its way to the Knesset of Israel? I mean, was it because there were too many 
Muslims attempting to convert Jews to their Muslim faith? Was it because there were too many Jews who were attempting to convert Muslims to Judaism? No. Beneath that was a great concern that too many Jewish people are beginning to trust in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And this needs to be stopped. Now, my, my first reactions when I read this just a few weeks ago, my first reactions were rather different in nature. My first one was dismay. I was just dismayed that there could be such darkness and animosity toward the message of Messiah in Israel where it is perfectly acceptable for 48% of the population to be agnostic and atheistic. 48% of the population of Israel, either agnostic or atheistic, that is acceptable, but not this. So I was dismayed by that at first, but then I was delighted because I thought, what is the reason for that attempted legislation? It's because there is a perceived threat. <laughs> there is the recognition that the gospel of Yeshua, the message of Messiah Jesus, is advancing in Israel. And there is great concern about that. And doesn't that take us all the way back to the very first century? And it takes us all the way back to this passage because actually those articles about that proposed legislation just a few weeks ago in Israel are actually just a commentary on this passage. So the key question that Paul is addressing here, remember in this section, there's a section of the letter to the Romans we are looking at in our Bibles. It's chapters 9, 10, and 11. It is a clear section in Paul's thinking, but I want you to know that when Paul was penning the book of Romans or whether he was dictating it, he didn't say chapter 9, <laughs> verse 1. Now he, He's writing a letter uh, the, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions were added later, hundreds of years later, to, to help us to find passages and sections of the New Testament. But Paul is clearly, you can follow his thinking, he's clearly in these chapters of our Bible, 9, 10, and 11, he has a focus, and the focus is this. Has God rejected his people Israel? What is going on? And you see, the reason he's addressing that question is because it was a polarizing question in his day. Because some people were saying, is that actually what you're teaching, Paul? Are you teaching that 
God has rejected the Jewish people? And then on the other side, there were people who were Gentile teachers, quote unquote, who were saying, that's exactly what's happened. God's turned his back on the Jews. He's turned to us now as his special people. And so this was a great issue. As a matter of fact, you know, there was such struggle in the capital of Rome among the Jewish congregations, the Jewish synagogues, about someone named the Christus. It got so out of hand that the emperor Claudius actually expelled the Jewish people for a time out of the city of Rome. Guess when that was happening? It was happening in the mid-50s A.D. Guess when Paul's writing this letter? (laughs) In the mid-50s A.D. He's writing to people in Rome about this issue. Because it is a very significant struggle that's taking place in the capital, but also in the church. Terrible misunderstanding. And so Paul is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to address this issue. Has God rejected his people? That's the question he starts with in verse 1. Do you see it? Has God rejected his people? Now the glorious answer is what he says. By no means. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So the question then is what about the evidence though? If So many Gentiles are becoming believers in the Messiah, Jesus. And so few Jewish people are. How do you explain this? Has he rejected the Jewish people? What has happened to the Jewish people since Their Messiah came, and their answer from their leaders before Pontius Pilate was, let him be crucified. The Jewish people rejected their king. Has their king rejected them? And so what's the answer? Well, the answer is what we want to focus on, and Paul opens us up in this chapter in particularly, and we're going to consider it under this heading this morning, a future for Israel, (laughs) a future for Israel. Two things I want you to see that Paul shares here, and then we'll walk through this. Number one, Israel's rejection is not total. That's the first thing. And then in just a few moments, we're going to look In verses 12 through 24, Israel's rejection is not total. That's verses 1 to 11. Then we're going to look at this. Israel's rejection is not permanent. And that is verses 12 to 24. That's Paul's answer to the question. The answer is 
Israel's rejection is not total. Israel's rejection is not permanent. That's the answer, but you can't leave yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you got to stay around. There's some stuff I want to say about that. First of all, Israel's rejection is not total. Notice this. God calls Israel his people. I asked then, has God rejected his people? Now this very clearly refers to the Jewish people. But now notice, when he refers to them as his people, he's not necessarily saying that all of them or even most of them are his spiritual people. That is that they are believers in Jesus as Messiah. Remember back in chapter 9, if you want to look there in chapter 9, verse 6, do you remember? As Paul dealt with this issue, he said in chapter 9, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What does that mean? Not everyone who is a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel is necessarily a believer, spiritually believer in Jesus. <laughs> so he's speaking here when chapter 11, when he says, has God rejected his people? His people here refers to ethnic Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Has God completely rejected ethnic Israel in a sense as his people? Now Paul in verses 1 through 11 describes Israel's condition before God and it's changed very little in 2,000 years. And so to answer the question... Has God rejected his people? Notice Paul offers himself first as exhibit A when he says, no. Has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest of the tribes. You remember it joined with the tribe of Judah, was of the southern kingdom of Judah. Faithful the longest to God. Paul says, God's not rejected the people of Israel. I myself am a descendant of Abraham. Through Isaac, Jacob, through Benjamin. He says, if God were going to reject any Israelite, what's his idea? If God were going to reject any Israelite, it would have been this Israelite. <laughs> because Paul was a persecutor of his brothers and sisters. He was a prosecutor of his brothers and sisters. Responsible for the death and imprisonment of many, many Jewish brothers and sisters who were believers. 
in Messiah Jesus. So Paul answers this, says, no, he's not rejected his ethnic people. I'm exhibit A. But then number two, he gives a historical example, not just his personal example. He gives a historical answer, uh, example. Look at verse two. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What does that mean? That he had a relationship with, a love relationship, a chosen relationship with them. Among all the peoples of the earth, he says, I foreknew you. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Now here's the historical example. How he speaks to God against Elijah, against, against Israel. And here's Elijah so, so downhearted after he's won that battle at the top of Mount Carmel. He's had the showdown against the 300 priests of Baal. Do you remember that? What an amazing moment. He's won the victory. And then King, Queen Jezebel says, if by sundown, may God do so to me if I do not kill you. And that mighty prophet, <laughs> he ran for the hills. Or ran to the valley. He's just overcome with depression. And he says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left. And they seek my life. That sound familiar to anybody in this room? <laughs> Maybe not today yet. Okay. But what did God reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He said, you're not the only one. I have 7,000. And that number 7,000 may be representative of many more thousands of people who have not bowed to Baal. They're not the majority, but they're my people. And I know who they are. Paul's point is this, verses 5 and 6. So at this present time, he's speaking in the mid-50s AD. And it's still true today. So at this present time, there is a remnant, a remnant of the ethnic Jewish people. They have been chosen by God's grace. They have been saved by God's sovereign grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Amen. They are not trusting in the law of Moses. They're not trusting in their rituals of Judaism. But they are trusting in Yeshua. Because of the grace of God, he has his people. And my friend, that is true 2,000 years later. Amen. There are ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people, who are coming to faith around the world. Thousands and thousands, more than ever. Coming to faith and trusting in the Lord. Some, many of them, untold number, are in churches like this. Some are here this morning, no doubt. 
I've had the privilege on several occasions to have Jewish people baptized in the name of their Messiah. Did you know that some gather in what they call messianic congregations, Jewish people gathering to worship Jesus? There are over 300 of these in the United States. There's over 300 of them in Russia. Did you know that? Messianic congregations. You say, well, how is that possible? God! God doesn't care about rootin' tootin' Putin, okay? He doesn't. It's no problem for God. <laughs> that was not in my notes, all right? And I hope, hope it was from the Lord, okay? But it's the, it's the truth. You know where the biggest evangelical church in Israel is today? By far the biggest. Christian school. Nazareth. Unbelievable. Thousands of people in Israel who are believers in Yeshua. But of course, there are remnants. Only a small portion of one percentage yet of the entire population. This remnant has experienced God's gracious salvation. But now notice the next thing Paul says about ethnic Israel. In verses 7 through 10. He says ethnic Israel has also experienced God's judicial hardening. A judgment. God's judicial hardening, verses 7 through 10. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, that is, seeking its own righteousness by the law. The elect, the ones that God has chosen in grace, they have attained it by faith. But those who wanted to attain it by themselves, they were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now this is a a dark passage. It's a passage of judgment. It is a passage of a judicial hardening. Now let's have an explanation of this. Paul is quoting here Moses and David and Isaiah. And he's quoting Moses, David, and Isaiah as supporting God's divine judgment on People who will not believe, who will not see what is right in front of them, who will not hear what is being testified to them. Israel's unbelief brought a judicial, a judgment from God of judicial hardening. 
You, you say, well, help me to understand that, Sam. What is judicial hardening? A judgment from God, which is a judicial hardening of a person's heart. This is what it is. Listen carefully. It is when the will-nots become the cannots. It's when the will-nots become the cannots. It's when people who will not see, will not listen, will not turn, will not come as God pleads with them and calls to them. They will not come. Then a moment can come when God says, all right, you cannot come. You will not, you will not, you will not. Now, you cannot. My friend, you do not come to God just whenever you want. You come to God when he is calling you. And today, if you hear his voice, oh, don't harden your heart. Don't callous your soul. If you're feeling and sensing and your conscience is open to things that are on your heart between you and God, thank God for that. He's working and calling you. This is what broke Jesus' heart. What was Jesus doing while he was riding the little donkey into Jerusalem? As people were singing with tears of joy coming down their face. As they were dancing in joy. And they were putting palm branches and their garments before the donkey. As they were celebrating, what was Jesus doing? Weeping. What was he weeping about? What was he saying? Here's what he said. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, you stone those who have been sent to you. How often, how often I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you would not behold your house is left to you desolate. That's what Jesus was talking about. He knew this parade of praise was not the true receiving of a king. He came unto his own and his own people received him not. John says... What's the personal application here, my friend? What's the personal application? The personal application is a universal principle. Listen to this. This is a universal principle. Light received brings more light. Light rejected brings more darkness. You don't stay neutral. When you receive a little light and you walk toward that light, you'll get more light. But when you receive light and you turn from it, you receive greater darkness. What does it say about Judas? After three years with Jesus, 
in the upper room, it says, he went out of the room and it was night. He went out into darkness forever. Oh, friend, if the Lord is giving you light, listen, you pray into that light. You dig toward that light. Some, you're here this morning, you don't even know why you're here. You didn't want to be here, didn't feel like coming here. But here you are, and now you sense that God's doing something. My friend, this is a sacred moment. You dig toward that light. You pray about that. You keep coming to where the light is, and God will give you more light. How tragic if there are some here this morning, you are already dead to the word. It wouldn't matter if Sam Polson or put another name is up here preaching the word of God. It would not matter. You're dead to the word because you've rejected, 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 rejected. And your conscience is no longer touched. Oh, dear friend. It's been a long time since you shed tears for souls. If it's been a long time since you shed tears over your own sin. If it's been a long time since tears came to your eyes as we sing these praises to Jesus, my friend, you better start crying out to God. Amen. Something's desperately wrong. There was a song that haunted me when we'd sing it. I was a teenager. We'd sing it at Sunday night services at church. I didn't want to be there. I hated church. I hated it. And those hillbillies would sing this song. And I'd stand there, big athlete that I was, and inside I trembled. The song, old song, it's called Oh Why Not Tonight. Oh, do not let the word depart and hide your eyes against the light. Oh, sinner, harden not your heart. Be saved, oh, tonight. Oh, why not tonight? Oh, why not tonight? Wilt thou be saved? Then why not tonight? Tomorrow's sun may never rise. To bless your long, deluded sight, this is the time. Oh, then be wise. Be saved tonight. I thank God one February Sunday night in 1974, by the grace of God, I said, tonight, tonight, my friend, today is the day of salvation. Amen. Today. Israel rejection is not total. Now notice this. Israel's rejection is not permanent. God still has his people. Jewish people who are believers in Jesus. Thousands of them. 
along with the untold millions and millions and millions and millions of Gentiles, non-Jewish people who are believers in the Messiah Jesus. But friend, what Paul says now is this, Israel's rejection is not permanent. Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble, meaning ethnic Israel, did they stumble in order that they might fall or be destroyed? By no means. <laughs> it's not over. That's what Paul's saying. Did the, did the Jews reject Jesus? Did the Jewish leaders say, let him be crucified? And it's over for the Jewish people? No, because the king that they crucified is the king that said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Amen. Amen. It's not over. And Paul tells us why it's not over. He answers the question. There's something that we need to recognize. He's speaking to us. Something that we need to recognize and something that we need to reject. And I end with this. Something we need to recognize and something that we need to reject. First of all, we need to recognize the wonderful plan of our sovereign God. The wonderful plan of our sovereign God. Listen, our awesome sovereign God knows how to bring good out of evil. God took the ultimate evil of all time, the murder of his son, and he made the murder of his son the salvation of the world. Our God is not a God of evil. He doesn't cause evil, but he overcomes evil for good. Amen. What's the good that could come out of such an evil, of the crucifixion of Messiah? What good could come? Well, notice verse 11. First of all, the rejection of Messiah brought salvation to the Gentiles. These people, the Jewish people, rejected their Messiah. The earlier believers were ethnic Jewish people. But for the most part, they did not receive Messiah. And what happened? That brought salvation to the Gentiles. Verse 11, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they, they may might fall by no means rather listen through their trespass <laughs> through their rejection of their king salvation has come to the nations as to make Israel jealous wait a minute he's our messiah <laughs> nope <laughs> he's our messiah too well, we crucified him. <laughs> you can't keep a good Messiah down. <laughs> he rose. He said, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. Jesus was lifted up on a cross and he didn't just see the hilltop of Calvary. He didn't just see Jerusalem spreading before him. He didn't just see the Mount of Olives in the distance. He could look across the mountains and the valleys and the seas. And he could see through the ages multitudes coming to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> 
Don't you see, Paul says? It was God using the rejection of the king by his people that he has brought the Gentiles to faith. God's awesome, sovereign wisdom. This jealousy here, the word jealous here means to hunger or desire. It's the idea of Gentiles are kind of stirring up some jealousy, hunger among Jewish people. I thought of that this week. I went over to my library, looked at these books, two, two great commentaries that I've used through the years by a man by the name of Charles Feinberg. Note that name, Feinberg. I've had these a long time. This one, October 17th, 1981. <laughs> this one, April 4th, 1980. I don't know what I was doing buying books like this when I was four years old, but I did, so. <laughs> just, just a wise kid. Feinberg, one of the greatest theologians and specialists in ancient language America has ever known. Listen to his story. Listen. Dr. Feinberg graduated Phi Beta, Beta Kappa from the University of Pittsburgh. He lived in an Orthodox Jewish household. The household every week had a Sabbath Gentile. A Gentile woman who was hired to serve them on the Sabbath so they wouldn't break the Sabbath. Still very common practice. Though Feinberg was not aware of it, this woman had taken the rites of purification simply so she could bear witness in that home. It meant every week she would go through the ritual washings so that she could serve in that home as a witness. Feinberg was attracted by the quality of her life, and he began to ask questions. And although the woman could not answer all his questions, she took him to Dr. John Solomon then the resident head of the American Board of Missions to the Jewish people. And Dr. Feinberg was led to Jesus. He, made, he had been made jealous, so to speak. He had been made thirsty by this woman. Her life and her testimony made him thirsty for what he did not have. The Lord says that's what we ought to be doing as believers. Amen. Sadly, if you talk to the average Jewish person today, would you say that's been there? They would say, yes, uh, we as Jewish people, our experience with most people who call themselves Christians has made, made us really want to become Christian. No. We have to accept that. What's been done in the name of Christ to the Jewish people over the centuries is absolutely abominable. And is as far as from Jesus as Hitler's from Jesus. In the name of Christ, the Jewish people have suffered terrible persecution. In the name of Christ, 
But that should never happen from people who truly know their Yeshua HaMashiach. People who know the Jewish man, Jesus, as their Savior. How can you love Jesus and not love his people? How can you? Making people jealous, salty. Being attractive for the gospel. You know, the Bible, some people say, you know, I just don't, I just want to be a humble little person. I don't want anybody to even notice me. Lord, just make me so humble, nobody ever notices me. That's not a scriptural prayer. The Lord wants you to be noticed. The Bible says, Jesus said, I want you to do good works so that people will see your good works and glorify you, right? No, they'll glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. They're, they're drawn to you. You know, I often say this, listen carefully. We need to be winsome people if we want to win some people. We need to be winsome people if we want to win some people. Winsome means that you're not repulsive. You don't have a chip on your shoulder attitude. You're not the kind of person that you say you're saved, but the faith doesn't know a thing about it. You're, you're kind. You're looking for opportunities to do good in Jesus' name. You want to lift burdens. You don't want to look for battles. You're looking for making peace and how to build relationships. A winsome person does that. It is not a person who's antagonistic and pushy and complaining. That is a witness for Jesus. Was our Jesus like that? Look up who Jesus talked tough to. It wasn't the publicans and the sinners. <laughs> no, it was the folks in the house of God. I read where a missionary about 80 years ago, 90 years ago now, asked Mahatma Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, Gandhi, the great leader in, in India, who had studied in the West, in his younger life, asked Gandhi, how can followers of Jesus win people in India? Actually asked this Hindu leader that question. How can we win people in, in India? And Gandhi's answer was this, four things. Number one, act like Jesus. Number two, do not compromise your faith. Believe what you believe. Don't yield it. Number three, learn all you can about non-Christian religions. Learn all you can. And number four, let everything be characterized by love. Amen. I'm sorry, I want to say amen Gandhi, okay? You want to reach your neighbors? You want to reach your classmates? You want to reach people in your office? How do we do that? Number one, act like Jesus. Number two, don't compromise your faith. Don't laugh about something that's not funny. 
Stand up for the oppression, for those who are oppressed. Be true to your faith. Pray over your meals. Talk about what the Lord's done for you. Number three, learn about all you can. Well, you want to build a relationship with your neighbor? Get to know your neighbor. You want to build a relationship with somebody in the office? Take time. Have lunch. Share a weekend event together. Go to a game together. Get to know that person. Take an interest. And then let everything you do be characterized by love. You want to win some for Jesus? Start by being winsome. Lastly, Paul says we must reject the awful pride of man. We must reject the awful pride of man. Beginning in verse 17. I just read through this. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and that is these Jewish branches, he's saying, were broken off. It's the image. And although you, a wild Olive shoot, you a Gentile, were grafted in among the others, and now you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. If you're a Gentile, see what Paul's thinking is? If you are a Gentile and some of the Jewish branches have been broken off from this olive tree of God's promises through Abraham, those promises fulfilled in Christ, if you, a wild branch, have been grafted in, are you going to boast against the others? How could you do that? Verse 19. Then you say, well, the, you know, Paul takes the, the position of the opposition. Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so don't be proud but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, maybe he won't spare you either. <laughs> Mic drop right there. <laughs> Boom. Think about that. Are you sure with that attitude? Are you sure you're a branch? You need to be careful. And you're boasting. Verse 22. Note then. The kindness and severity of God. Now stop right there. Wow, we could do a message there. The kindness and the severity of God. He's both. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. Fallen because of their rejection and unbelief. But God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. 
And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Do not be boasting of your righteousness. If you boast of your righteousness, then you're doing the very thing that people who are trying to save themselves by good works are doing. Beware, lest you be the very kind of person who receives the judicial hardening. My friend, you need to look to yourselves in your own life that way. I thank God that maybe you came to faith in Jesus Christ as a child. Thank God for that. But has your life shown fruit through these years? Are you trusting that you just walked an aisle as a little boy or a little girl? Some people who have walked an aisle for Jesus have never walked straight for Jesus. Something's wrong. Do you know that you know that you know that you are holding on to Jesus? My hope is Christ alone. It's nothing I've done, nothing I've said. It's not my communion, my church membership, my baptism. My hope is Jesus Christ who died and rose again for me. That is the hope of a Christian, not boasting. If we boast, we boast in the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, believers, once we were outsiders, but we've been brought in. I love what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He's making this new people, a new man. And this wall of division that was in the temple between where the Gentiles could come, the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews. In Christ, that wall has been broken down. Listen to me, my friends. There's only one covenant people that know the salvation of Jesus Christ. And that is Christ himself. Salvation is in Christ, Jew or Gentile. Whatever country, whatever ethnic background, it is in Christ that all the promises of God are made. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free. We are all one in Christ. You see, this is the fulfillment. But the gospel is the power of God to whom? The Jews first and also to the Greeks. And God is saying, and we'll see this next week, that there is yet going to be an outpouring upon the ethnic people, Jewish people, who will come? Who will come? I believe that with all my heart. They've been gathered from the nations back to the land of Israel. Something that's never happened in the history of the world. A people returning to their homeland. Now, they're in the millions, but in unbelief. A valley of dry bones with muscles and skin. Ezekiel 37. But Ezekiel was asked, can these dry bones live? And he says, oh Lord, you know. And the Lord showed him by the breath of his life. He breathed into those dry bones, those dead bodies. And they came to life. This is his promise. That there will come a movement of God. I love Revelation 21, verses 12 to 14. 
an angel says to John, says, come. And I want to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, this is interesting. In the Old Testament, God is called, he calls Israel his wife. In the New Testament, he calls the church his bride. The angel says, come, I want to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And John says, I look, and I saw a holy city coming down from heaven. And it had 12 gates. And on the name of every gate was the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And I saw this city, the habitation of the people of God. It had 12 foundations. And on each of those foundations was a name of the apostle of the Lamb. What did he see? He saw the covenant people of God for the ages. God will dwell with them. They will be his people. He will be their God. They will be united as one people. People of the old covenant coming into this covenant through faith in Jesus. One people. One bride of Christ forever. No longer the division. The eternal covenant people of God. People who did what? Were they saved because they were Jewish? Were they saved because they were Baptist? No. (laughs) No. They're saved because they believed God. They believed him and it was counted to them for righteousness. Now, friend, I want to ask you, in that holy city, are you on the inside or the outside? Right now, are you on the inside or the outside? Because you're either one of those who make up that wonderful bride, or you're not. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And I want to tell you, I feel led to tell you this. Some of you have been praying and praying and praying for loved ones for years. Don't stop. God's able. God's able. And I want to tell you, every promise God made in this book is as sacred and as true as the promise he made to Abraham. We're standing on the promises. Amen? We're standing on the promises. And that's the reason we serve him. And my friends, if we're standing on the promises, let's don't waste our time sitting on the premises, okay? Let's serve our Lord. Father, thank you so much for this time of worship. You are a faithful God. You are a faithful God. You are a God who cannot lie. Your promises are yes and amen. And all the promises you have made, they are secured in Jesus Christ. And Lord, give us faith to believe that having saved us, we despair of no one. We believe you're able to save to the uttermost. Lord, may we worship you today. 
great is thy faithfulness. And God's people said, amen. amen. Let's